For the week of July 30th, 2023, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 624, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. Uh, well, actually, you're wrong, but in Birmingham, Alabama, I'm Michael Giltz. I don't know why I'm wrong. Why am I wrong? Well, didn't you get the memo? We have changed the name. We are converting from Showbiz Sandbox to just Box. We're going to call ourselves Box. In the great oh, tradition yeah. of Twitter becoming X, HBO becoming Max, Amazon just says, call us Prime. Uh, Facebook is Meta. Coke went to New Coke <laughs> when people were perfectly happy with Coke. So absurd name changes. We're right on top of it. And we're going to be called Box from now on. Side. You know why? Because we think outside the box. <laughs> yes, that is true. I can't wrap my head around the whole Twitter thing. I'm like, you bought something for $45 billion so that you could change the branding? Well, let's not forget, he didn't want to buy it. <laughs> you know, he yeah. tried to back out of the deal, but he wants to make it WeChat, right? And you're familiar with that. Yeah, there's no way Twitter or X or whatever it's called is going to become WeChat. The reason WeChat can become WeChat is because the Chinese government allowed it to happen and kind of forced it to happen because they can monitor everything through WeChat. There is no way that Twitter, now X, is going to become the next WeChat. In fact, the government is about to, or has filed, right, stuff to break up Amazon, for example. And there's all, often calls for Facebook and Google, or Alphabet and Meta, I should say. Alphabet, there's another good one. Let's call ourselves Alphabet. But at least we still call that Google. I well, mean, we do. We ignore them. Yeah. Yes, we yeah. try to. But yeah, there you go. So, wow, that's what people are talking about in the business world. What are we going to talk about in this episode? What, what am I going? How are you, Sperling? You were back on a family vacation. I've got my mother in the hospital with sepsis. It's an exciting, dramatic time here at Showbiz Sandbox. I was sleeping in the ICU on a chair last night. Uh, my mom is doing better, though. They moved her from ICU to a regular room. That's a very good sign, but she's 94. So, you know. Is she complaining about, like, I can't, the remote control, what button works? I mean, frankly, I would be complaining about that. I'd be looking at the buttons going, wait, which one is volume and which one, <laughs> what, that's volume? Like, I, I would just be complaining nonstop about the remote control. Yeah, she hates her room. She wants to be back in ICU because I had a nice glass wall and she could look at stuff happening in the, in the, you know, watch the nurses going back and forth and patients and people. It was like a lot of activity. Now she's in a private room with a window and some trees and she's not happy. <laughs> We're like, but, but you're doing better. This is progress. I hate this room. I hate it. <laughs> did, did she complain that the remote control didn't change the channel when she was in the ice? She's like, I don't know. I keep trying to change the channel. It's always this, this medical show that I'm watching. Meanwhile, the nurses keep popping in. Yeah. <laughs> like, don't press that button. So yeah, so my mom is in the hospital with sepsis being treated and taken care of. She's on antibiotics, of course, and responding well. Last week, I drove my niece, Amanda, to Colorado. She's going to grad school there. I drove her to Loveland, Colorado, which sounds like it might be in the sequel to the Barbie movie. I think like Loveland is next to Candyland and Tomorrowland, but Barbie could visit, I feel like. Uh, Loveland is a very cool sounding town, but uh, that was a lot of fun. And I flew back in time uh, for the show and also to see my mom in the hospital. Well, I'm glad she's doing better. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping, uh, that you'll tell us all about your trip to see, uh, Barbie and, and Oppenheimer and Barbenheimer and whether you were able to see those films when we do our box office segment. Well, let's, let's not offend our, uh, audiences in Japan, the Japanese, uh, theater owners and the Japanese division of, of Warner brothers or whatever it's called said, um, let's not make jokes about nuclear Holocaust. Cause we actually had one here. 
and the Warner Brothers uh, parent company has apologized for retweeting uh, stuff that other people had done. You know, the, the goofy stuff that we've seen with, you know, Barbie and Oppenheimer together with a backdrop of a mushroom cloud and stuff. In Japan, that's not funny. <laughs> they don't that like that. That is true. And so Warner Brothers wisely and smartly and said, yes, you're right. We do deeply apologize. Uh, it's tricky to, to sell that film in Japan. but it's The, doing the irony is they're the ones that made the Barbie movie. The, the lesser of, the, you know, they didn't Le- make Oppenheimer. How is it they lesser? Made the bar- no, no, meaning that they, they made the comedy. Well, well they were retweeting, and- but they were retweeting oh, okay. posters that would offend people. So, yeah, they're Got not it. happy okay. about anybody, you know, making light of that topic in Japan. So, you know, no crossover to Barbie, please, in Japan. Quite understandable. So that's some of the stuff that's been happening for the last two weeks. Come on, let's dive into it. What are we going to talk about? Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we are catching up, as, as you kind of pointed out. Barbie took over the world, as we were just talking about. Uh, Oppenheimer then tried to blow it up. And they're both winners, ironically. We've got the latest on the strikes, WGA, sag after, And we do mean strikes, by the way. The actors, the writers, the UPS drivers, the Broadway backstage crews, the United Auto Workers, even Jeopardy! champions are thinking about going on strike. Happily, many of them avoided a strike or boldly refused to cross picket lines. I, I, don't, I don't know. Can Hollywood do the same? I don't think so. I think they're already... Anyway, Kevin Spacey was found not guilty on a string of sexual assault charges he faced in the United Kingdom. The actor faces no more legal challenges anywhere in the world. And, and, and we'll skip over that. That's all we need to say. It's well, only my, fair my, that we repeat that. Yeah, my question is, does he get uncanceled? So... No, that's not use the absurd uh, comments of canceled and cancel culture, which does not exist. People often pay a price when there are 20 people come forward and say you sexually assaulted or harassed or tried to rape me when I was 14. Those tend to be people other people don't want to work with or hire to be the star of their film. So cancel culture is BS, but repercussions for things that you have done are real and they will always continue. And uh, I agree. By the way, you're wrong. It wasn't 20 people. It was 30. It was 30 people. So oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, well, on Inside Baseball, uh, we'll look at video streaming. According to Nielsen, it hit a new peak in popularity. Go figure. Plus, the streamer Paramount Plus broke into the big time by counting for at least 1% of total video streaming, the first time it's ever done so. And people are finally doing the math. Folks realize they can subscribe to eight streamers and pay almost as much as they used to pay for 800 channels via cable. So what hmm. would you call that? Shrinkflation? That's can we, shrinkflation, can we bundle right? them? Could we just sort of bundle them together and call it? I don't know. Yeah, it does come over a cable. So oh. maybe, maybe we could call it cable television because it comes over a cable unless you're getting it over. Anyway, uh, during Big Deal or Bib Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office. Are we doing box office or are we doing this letter from uh, our listener? Well, uh, James Gardner, Mm -hmm. yeah, I have it at the top because James Gardner in Australia, he's a listener in Australia, he wrote to dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. He said, uh, and he was talking about our our show with Jonathan Handel, which was episode 623. He says, good and interesting show this week. During the show, Michael went over the performance of many different regions. I would like to know where you got this data and if I could have a copy. I am writing a newsletter for SEO, which is the Small Cinema Owners uh, Association, uh, and would like to refer to it. 
There is also a major bit of news that is embargoed until after August 1st, which is the very day we're recording. Uh, so, so keep an eye out for that. I have been. Uh, it's in context that small cinemas are doing so badly. Most are cactus, and, in, and the industry have no option but to address this. I don't know what cactus means. That must be a, a colloquial Aussie slang phrase. Yeah, no, yeah. So, and you say, writes regards James Gardner, and uh, I'll let you explain where you get all of these, uh, uh, these figures from. I believe you, at once you said, oh, I just pulled them out of thin air. <laughs> That's right. I make them up. Why yes. do Aussies uh, use cactus to mean dead, useless, or broken? Like in this bloody washing machine is cactus. Um, how did this come about? Apparently, um, Citroen had a car called Cactus. Maybe that was the reason. So we'll have to look it up. But yes, just confirming that in Australia, Cactus is sort of a uh, slang for dead, broken, not working, no good. Where do we get our info from? We say this every week in part. We pull our information from Comscore. They have a publicly available chart that lists right now the top 10 grossing movies from around the world that they get information on. Now, they uh, used to have a longer list. I wish they would go back to that for a brief period. They used to include the full week's box office, but now they're back to just reporting the opening weekend. Let's put that in quotes, since that often includes Friday, Saturday, Sunday for movies that are already open and Thursday through Sunday for movies that are opening on that particular week. Then we go far afield. Every once in a while, the trades will do a story on the box office in Korea or China or India you know, in some territory, though often Korea and China, Japan, not so often, even though it's a huge market. We also look at charts that are available online, which we often have links to in our show notes, and I'll make an effort to put them in this week. Like uh, there's a Bollywood box office chart. It's not an Indian chart. It only covers films made uh, in the Hindi market, so it doesn't cover Telugu, Tamil, and et cetera. But they do include the big movies there. And then we look for random stories about movies. We look at the Chinese box office chart available on Monday morning from one of the websites that are out there. Japan's info is always like days late, so we can never quite cover Japan. Korea is also a challenge unless there's a big movie and the trades decide to cover it. Once now, now mo- just to, not to interrupt you, but, but Japan is very hard to get even if you're in Japan. Well, sure. Same with India. India is a yeah. very hard market to get. Uh, information on. They have no compelling reason to shout it out to the world, though I think they do have a compelling reason, which is to promote the Indian film industry. We have an Indian film in the top 10 in North America this week. That happens all the time now. I was going to mention it's so commonplace that we have an Indian film in the top 10. We don't even mention it. You know, so that's how cool it is. And we have other films from other countries that are premiering in the top 12, the top 15. And so it's good. It behooves a country to promote their industry. And part of that is transparency on box office. It's free advertising. Now, once a movie crosses our path, then we track it forever until it falls off the charts. So if a movie like in Korea or China or somewhere pops onto our list, we then search Google for it. We go to Wikipedia, which is proving an increasingly good source of information for the latest box office figures. So maybe if I find a Chinese movie, uh, that information won't be available till Tuesday or Wednesday, but I Google it or I go to Wikipedia and I found out the latest box office numbers there. And of course, we report on the full week's box office. So we just take last week's, we take last week's total box office and this week's total box office and we subtract. So if we find out a movie now is grossing $400 million and last week it had $320 million when all the week was done, well, we know whatever people reported that was grossed over the weekend, we know over the last seven days it grossed $80 million. It's just simple math. So we do the best well, we can. And, and we it's very hard to get everywhere. this. 
And it's very hard to get this stuff correct, even when you have all this information fed to you uh, directly from studios or distributors, which is why at the end of every year, those numbers that we get on, you know, December 31st or January mm-hmm. 10th, those are estimates because they're, they're still busy going country by country and tallying everything up. Right. So we're always asking you to chime in when you have a movie in France or Turkey or Poland or, or Australia that's doing great that we might not have uh, seen info on yet or Mexico or you name it, any territory around the world. Uh, it's, it's a fair amount of effort to try and keep it up. We try to be as accurate as possible. We love it that more and more people are covering the worldwide box office because we think that's what matters, just like you wouldn't cover North America by saying, how much did it make in New York? No, how much did it make everywhere? And if some trade or people would pick this up and do this permanently, boy, would we be happy. <laughs> that would that be great. True. Make our life. We put a lot of work into it. Well, obviously, we link to our show notes every week, but they don't come up until you know we post the show, which could be Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday. It just depends on our week and how it's going for Sperling. He has to do a lot of work to get the notes ready. So you know, we always post our chart every week. You can go back and see them. We'll do that every week. Uh, we've given you the source where we pull info from, but it's really just pulling in anything from anywhere and everywhere. And when we do that, we find out that worldwide for the box office for the weekend in July 30th, the number one movie around the world is, of course, Barbie. $420 million this week. It's at $775 million worldwide. Uh, Margot Robbie joked, I think just before it opened, how she was saying, I was pitching this movie and I'm telling the studios, you've got to understand, this this movie's going to make a billion dollars, but it has to have Greta Gerwig directing it. She was really pushing for Greta. And she said, obviously, I may have been, you know, hyping it up a little bit. Uh, no, you weren't. <laughs> it looks well, like do you remember you after- are going to make a billion dollars. Do you remember after CinemaCon, I came back and I said, that movie is going to overperform. Oh, yeah. And it's I didn't think it would be like, I thought like, oh, it's going to make 600, 700, 800 million dollars. Did I think it would make a billion dollars? No, not and a when billion. You, and when you, if you follow us on Facebook, I posted something on Thursday night when I went to see Oppenheimer and said, wow, <laughs> people are where, six guys in a Barbie t-shirt, people dressed up, people calling to each other that they didn't know across the room going, hi, Ken, hi, Barbie. I mean, people were so into this that on Thursday night. And of course, that's no secret at that point, but the buzz was building and building and building. And I said, look, whatever your expectations are commercially for this movie, they're going to be bigger. (laughs) This movie is a true phenomenon, and it's certainly proven to be that. It's a lot to say about it, but there's also a lot to say about the number two movie around the world, Oppenheimer. It made $220 million this week. I think both these movies improved on their second weekend practically. They had minuscule hole, you know, drops, or in some territories they grew. Oppenheimer has now made $400 million worldwide. They're both already profitable after two weeks. And if Barbie had not come out this week, I'm sure Oppenheimer would have been equally as, you know, a success story. You can talk about this the faux synergy, but in general, they both were going to be very successful because they both delivered. And we would be talking on and on about Christopher Nolan and Oppenheimer and how terrific this is for this, you know, $100 million movie about a very tough subject. It's a three hour film. It's very serious and it's doing great. And that's great to see. And so is Barbie. And, so- and do you want to talk a little bit about the IMAX results. I mean, they are, I mean, I think it's already made $80 million in IMAX, which there's is so much, there's so many records that have, you know, uh, slice and dice some records for both these movies. I mean, Barbie is the high, going to be the highest grossing movie of all time directed by a woman. 
It already is, I think. Uh, No, because there's a woman who has co-directed a movie, but this will be a solo directing effort. Uh, But there is a a female director who worked on, was it Frozen 2? Or I forget what the the movie was now. Forgive me, your work deserves uh, being raised up, but I forget. But, you know, know, records are falling left and right on both of these movies. And, of course, we have Tom Cruise with Mission Impossible who's saying, hey, I thought I was going to get some IMAX screens back. Well... They may not, not be really. so eager to hand them back again. So, yeah, they're both phenomenons on every possible level. It was a shame we couldn't talk about them last week. Uh, but there's going to be a lot to talk about for weeks to come on Barbie at $420 million and Oppenheimer at $220 million. Both movies, huge success stories right out of the gate, both critically and commercially, something the whole industry loves to see. At number three around the world is Creation of the Gods Part One. This is a Chinese fantasy based on the novel Feng Xian Yanyi. It's sort of a uh, epic tale. It's a classic. It, they say it's akin to Journey to the West, a story that we have seen told and retold in Chinese and other cinema around the world. People are kind of familiar with it if they've listened to our show. So this fantasy tale is pretty much as familiar to that audience as would be Journey to the West or in our culture, maybe Robin Hood and stuff like that. This is everybody knows it. This is the first of a trilogy. They're hoping to make it a huge success. It's a big, ambitious movie. It made $100 million this week, and it's at $150 million worldwide. It's another movie who opened strong and then built. So the word of mouth on Creation of the Gods looks quite good, though we don't know the budget. Then right below that is Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. It made $78 million this week. It's at $450 million worldwide. Uh, then another Chinese film. This is the animated movie called Chang'an San Wan Li. It's about three hours long. It grossed $51 million this week, and it's at $216 million worldwide. Just looking at the trailer, I'd like to see this movie. It's good, impressive animation. Then there's a new movie in China. It's called One and Only. It opened to about $48 million this week, and when you add in the previews it made, it's now at $54 million worldwide. It's a breakdancing film about a young breakdancer and an older breakdancer, and they're both working to break into the, you know, be stars. For some reason, people said that it slightly underperformed this week when it opened up. I don't know what the box off, what the budget was or why $50 million would be a, a disappointment for a movie like this. It sounds like a great opening to me, but, you know, if it costs a lot or they just thought it was going to be the biggest movie ever, yeah, I don't know, but that looks like a promising opening. Then there's Elemental, the Pixar film, another $38 million. It's now doubled its budget. It's at $400 million worldwide. It's still chugging along. Clearly, the word of mouth is good on this one. It's not the monster hit that Barbie and Oppenheimer are, but you can feel a lot better about where how it's going to do in your library. Uh, Never Say Never, another Chinese film that made $35 million this week. It's just about to hit $300 million. That's because compared to our list last week, which you can find in our show notes, uh, we found some extra money. Every once in a while, a movie suddenly leaps by X amount of dollars because the totals were not uh, including everything. And so we're like, wait a second, how did that happen? But anyway, it looks like it's made about $300 million worldwide. Then we have another movie film. It's Disney's Haunted Mansion. We'll be talking about this in Big Deal, Big Whoop, because it opened to $33 million. Not a good look. And some people quite rightly said, why didn't you open this at Halloween? You know, it would have been like the only family-friendly Halloween film. It seems weird to open it in the summer. Of course, it was handcuffed a bit by the stars not being able to promote it that much. But they're in the trailer. And you know what? It didn't get that good review. So I'm not thinking it would have done wildly well, even if you'd opened it up in Halloween. 
And well, at least, another. at least mm-hmm. then in Halloween, there's there's less out, right? Like you could, there's they. I didn't just take the kids to see Barbie. I, I'm looking for something uh, for them to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, well, the argument is that maybe they opened it now so they could get it into video on demand and stuff, and then have it on Disney Plus come Halloween. So <sighs> they were in July, right? So that's really putting the cart before the horse, people. You want to have a big theatrical as much as possible. It's a great advertisement for the movie, but not if the theatrical falls a little flat. Now, it doesn't matter because your movies, you know, movies can do well and stream. Oh, yeah, I'll watch that. So you can't play games with yourself. Do what you think is best for the movie, not, well, then I can put it on streaming. It's like, that, you know, that's for the following year. That should not be how you planned it out this time. You don't open a Halloween-themed movie in July or a Christmas-themed movie in, in you know, uh, August and, a, and an Easter film in January just so you can put it on your streamer come the holiday. If that's what you want to do, don't release it theatrically and make it for a price. Now, below Honda Mansion is another phenomenon, Sound of Freedom, the Jim Caviezel Kitty Sex Ring film that we've been teasing it is really doing tremendously well. It has clearly moved beyond the you know, far-right, faith-based audience. It made another $24 million this week. It's at $150 million worldwide. It's almost all grossed in North America, if not every penny. And there now are plans for it to be opening up in all sorts of new territories. People have jumped on the bandwagon. This is how well it's doing. Sound of Freedom has grossed more in North America than Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Now that's a shocker. It, it is. It is. Yeah. And I, I think I told you via text, we were texting back and forth that I, I went and, and checked the metrics, the analytics on, on Celluloid Junkie yesterday just mm-hmm. by chance. I was like, oh, I should probably check those every once in a while. I mean, we know our audience, we know who they are. Oh, we right, know, yeah. we know, you know, so that's why I don't check them as often as I should. Uh, and they were off the charts. I couldn't believe I thought, what the heck? Why do we have, like, these are consumer level figures Mm -hmm. i couldn't figure it out and then i figured it out that there was a story a couple stories on sound of freedom that had crossed over into consumer world and i was like oh okay so they must have like been linked conservative audiences who wanted to promote the movies hey look see how well it's doing that's right success begets success that's not the case for indiana jones and the dial of destiny this is not how you wanted to say goodbye to harrison ford's indy but the reviews are okay and the movie's okay it made 21 million dollars this week it's at 356 million dollars worldwide it has passed its budget just barely Insidious, The Red Door is a horror flick directed and starring Patrick Wilson. $18 million this week. It's at $175 million worldwide. That's a huge success. Horror translates all over the world, says Sperling. And he's certainly right when it comes to the Aussie horror flick, Talk to Me. It premiered at Sundance, got great buzz. A24 picked it up. It has a reported budget of $5 million. It has opened up to $14 million. So it pretty much tripled its budget in its opening week. That is great news that <laughs> there's going to be some sort of sequel, I imagine, unless they made it impossible. But that is a great opening for Talk To Me and another win for A24. Right below that is uh, an Indian film. It is Rocky Arani Ki Prem Kahani. I apologize. Uh, I tried to listen to trailers and stuff, but could not find a pronunciation that I could follow. This is a Hindi rom-com, so it would be on that Bollywood chart that we look at because that only covers Hindi films. It's a romantic comedy drama of sorts. It opened to $10 million. Its budget is $20 million, and it opened in the top 10 in North America, which is almost not worth talking about anymore. It's so common. Then we've got Advancing of ZQ, a comedy fantasy with 
open to $10 million. We've got Bro, an Indian Telugu film. It's open to $10 million. It's a remake of a Tamil film about a guy who dies and death is taking him away. He's like, no, I've been a jerk. I need to fix things. People are not, you know, they're not going to do well. Give me three months, please. I just need a little time to make things right. And death is like, all right, but I'm hanging out with you. And then it's a heartwarming tale of him, you know, making better and making, helping out all the people that he should have. And it has the ending you don't expect necessarily. Uh, but it sounds like Hollywood should be remaking this sucker forthwith. Uh, I can't wait to hear about The Boy and the Heron, Miyazaki's swan song. That made another $8 million this week. It's certainly more quiet than I expected for this final film from a master in Japan. It's at $26 million. In Japan, they call it How Do You Live? Because it sort of references a classic novel by that name, though it is not apparently a story about, you know, based on that novel, but it does echo that novel that everyone would know. Hey, if you've seen The Boy and the Heron, or if you know more about its box office story in Japan, tell us. Or if you're going to the Toronto International Film Festival, where The Boy and the Heron will actually open the film festival this year, mm-hmm. let us know. You can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're on Facebook, where our page is facebook.com slash showbizsandbox. That's where you can like our page. And I guess we have to call it X, although I refuse to. No, no, no. Just call it Twitter. We're on Twitter. And (laughs) at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle. (laughs) Uh, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse is doing great. $682 million. They just announced it coming out on, you know, video on demand and then digital and on DVD. Hey, hey, do you know know when the second part's coming out, by the way? Do you know when the The second part's? The third part. Well, okay, the third part, but the second part of no, the no, second. No, 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 it's a trilogy. Part three is coming out, and it's delayed because of the strike. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, right. if you know, please let us know. Let everybody know, in fact. <laughs> but please, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, one of the best films of the year. It deserves to be seen on the big screen. It's still making money, another $7 million this week. I hope people keep it in theaters at least a time or two a day when people are still trying to check it out. The Little Mermaid is, you know, slowing down at $560 million. And Asteroid City, the Wes Anderson film, he proved he can open a film, but unfortunately this one didn't quite deliver for his audience. It's at $46 million worldwide. It's made $2 million this week. It cost about $25 million to make. So I don't know how many territories are left, but I don't think there's a lot more money to be made on this one. But, you know, he opened it. He proved people will show up for his movies. And so he should, and it should be a valuable library property. So things will be okay. Oh, and a movie I really wanted to see opened in North America. I was busy traveling. The first slam dunk, that massively successful Japanese film that has really been a sensation in a lot of countries. It opened in North America at number 12. That's what I was thinking about when I mentioned we have an Indian film at number 10. We have a Japanese film at number 12. That's amazing. That's cool. It made about $600 million, but worldwide, $600 million. It made about $600,000, so it had a pretty soft opening, I'm afraid. But worldwide, it's at $264 million. And it was definitely a movie I am interested in checking out because it was such a hit everywhere else. I thought you had something to say about that because I knew you were tracking it. But anyway, we also have the, the numbers for last week, July t- the weekend in July 23rd, when Barbie and Oppenheimer opened to such acclaim and such great buzz. Uh, but that's very cool to see. Apparently last week when they opened up, that was the first time ever, I couldn't believe this, that two movies opened with one hitting at least $100 million and a second movie hitting at least $50 million on their opening weekend. 
I, I, I'm astonished that, that that has not been done before now. Obviously, well, it's two movies opening, so there have been movies that have held over that have made more money, but this is the first time two movies opened in the same week and they met those metrics. One at least $50 million and the other at least $100 million. Well, think about it. If you're opening and you know, hey, my competitor is going to have a movie that is going to have a $100 million opening, maybe you wait until next weekend to open. <laughs> you know, no, like, you were wise not to. Counter-programming. Don't worry about it. Yeah, well, that's what I was saying. That's what I, you know, I, I said that, that that could work. What I did think would happen is what happened. And what I mean by that is I thought somebody was going to get hurt this year. I thought this summer, yes, I know it used to be called summer. I know there used to be blockbuster after blockbuster, sometimes two in a weekend. But as you just pointed out, not all of them grossed, you know, opened well. I knew somebody was going to get hurt in their second weekend or their third weekend, and that's exactly what happened to Mission Impossible. But they're not hurt because movies weren't spaced out more. They're hurt in some way because the people, you know, the movies just didn't deliver as much as people wanted. I mean, yeah, I mean, that, I, 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 did, I saw um, Mission Impossible. Did you see Mission Impossible? I did. I thought it and, was solid. Yeah, it's yeah, a I, solid movie. Mm-hmm. I think and, Haley Atwell is terrific. I think we said that before. I thought she really had a star-making performance, so that was great to see. I thought it delivered. If you like the Mission Impossible movies, they've always been slow openers, and you're arguing the long legs that it would normally show have been cut out from under it by the success of Barbie and Oppenheimer. But you know what? There's just not three or four weeks of you know, space between movies anymore. You just can't find that. Uh, I think uh, you know when the movie's good, people will find it any day, any week, any month of the year. However, that was not a success story on their opening weekend because neither of them opened on a three-day weekend, but a four-days. Thousands of screenings were held on Thursday for Barbie and Oppenheimer. I went to see Oppenheimer. People were flocking to see Barbie. It's not a three-day weekend, so you shouldn't be comparing it to those other movies. But what stuns me about Barbie, which I did see, is that the soundtrack, the official soundtrack, does not include the Indigo Girls and Closer to Fine or Matchbox 20's I Will. What the heck? <laughs> I mean, they're in on the joke. They're happy to be in the movie, so why aren't they on the soundtrack? Yeah, they had to be... Um you know, obviously they gave permission for it to appear in the movie and that and was one in the, the context. Right. And they, that's one of those things that's source music, meaning you have to get it before you shoot because the, the well, characters yeah, yeah, on screen You don't want to have to redo the scene. Yeah. 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 Uh, and so, yeah, I think. I don't uh, know why they're not there, but anyway, Mattel is excited. Of course, they're like, it's gone to their head. I fear they're like, then they have stuff seriously in development with like directors. They have Barney. Boy, why that should be a movie. Hot Wheels, that makes sense. Thomas and Friends, directed by Mark Foster. More Barbie, of course. Polly Pocket. Lena Dunham wrote the script for a Polly Pocket movie. They're vaguely saying Vin Diesel in a Rock'em Sock'em Robots movie. I mean, they're like, well, we've got the Barbie multiverse. <laughs> it's like, try to make one other good movie, you know? Don't run before you can walk. You, you got really smart here and lucky here. Good job. Let's not suddenly put 20 movies into production. Uh, and if you do, let's make sure we dedicate the next Barbie film to Bill Cunningham because Ken is dead. Or rather, Bill Cunningham is dead at 96. He's best known as one of the co-founders of CESD, a major talent agency. But long before that, he was a singer and performer, uh, Fred Astaire, Dinah Shore. He crossed paths with all these people. And he was the first speaking and singing voice of Ken for Mattel. So that's kind of cool. Well, yeah, he was a kind of a, a well-known uh, agency figure here in 
Yeah, Hollywood. he invested in Pacific Arts Agency just as his career was coming to a close on No Thanks to Rock and Roll. And that was one of the first talent agencies in L.A. He never looked back. And China's not looking back. Their year-to-date box office, not bad. Their year-to-date box office is $4.9 billion, just 6% below 2019. From what I can tell, am I wrong? North American year-to-date box office since the Barbie uh, Oppenheimer phenomenon is $5.7 billion. And to my numbers, it looks like it's tracking 2% above 2019 of $5.6 billion. Well, thankfully, a couple things here. Thankfully, uh, we stopped this whole like, oh, everything to 2019. Yeah. You know, if you're always compare yourself to Carl Lewis as a runner, guess what? You're always going to be slow. You know, well, that's, well that's, that just happens to be the case that that was a record year. You can't compare yourself to 2020 or 2021 or 2022 because of all the, you know, crazy COVID stuff. So it's just the most recent year. That's a reasonable comparison. Yes, you should not in general compare yourself to the biggest year of all time. Keep that in context or one of the biggest years of all time. So, yeah, you got it that kind of. But what are you going to compare it to? Randomly okay, so here the year. Yeah. I'm I'm pulled up some figures here. July and year to date 2023 domestic box office is uh, well. First of all, July was up by 1.4 percent over the running average. Okay, of mm-hmm. of of the of 17, 18, and 19. So 2017, That's 2018, a great and 20- comparison. Sure, 2019, Good. the running average. Uh, it is uh, it it is down. The year to date is down 17.6 percent. How year I'm, to I'm, date? I must have got. I had year to date compared to the running average, because I have it above 2019. Maybe 2019 caught fire later. Even uh, yeah, so. I don't. Ha- unfortunately, I don't have 2019. Yeah, yeah. I only have sure. the the running okay, average. Okay, so it's of down. That years. running average is down. How much? 19 percent. 17.6 percent. Right. So that's a lot. That's good. That's a great comparison. I appreciate that. Um, any other info in that? Well, uh, 2023 is up uh, 12 percent. Uh, July was up 12%, and year-to-date, 2023 over 2022, oh, we're only right. talking oh, domestic, okay. by the way. We are yeah. only talking domestic. I don't have figures for international. Nobody 18, does. Yeah, 18.1% versus right, 2022. Right, right, whatever, yeah. But uh, one nice thing was that AMC dropped their variable pricing because— Oh, I know why they did that. I totally know why they did that because oh, when they looked me. at all the numbers and mm-hmm. they said, oh, look at all this test we did, this pilot test, we, we figured out this was a really dumb idea. <laughs> no, they said, said— Wow, people loved it. They loved paying more. They were happy to pay more for their premium seats. And it's true, people still didn't want to pay for those really awful seats in the front row that we never should have installed in the first place. But we're going to make them even more reclining, and they're going to be awesome. Don't you worry about it. It's like, no, don't put seats behind a pillar. Don't put seats in that front section where absolutely nobody wants to sit because they are not reasonable seats. Get rid of them. So just get over it. But yeah, even with lower prices, people avoided the front rows because they suck. You know, oh, well. So, yeah, I'm, you know, people paid more for the best seats. They said, yeah, but that doesn't mean they were happy about it or it was a good idea. And you know what? I'm one of those people in a way that may they may count as having paid for it, but I didn't pay a premium because I'm an AMC member. So, you know, I could choose any seat I wanted. Yeah, true. Yeah, so I was ready to go on strike over those uh, variable pricing. It was very annoying. Well, this is literally, this is, you know, what what do they call it? Hollywood uh, hot strike summer. Hollywood's mm-hmm. hot strike summer. I think uh, I, I that was my my CJ Marquee newsletter headline, but I think I may have stolen that from somebody because I swear there's no way I created that. I, there's no way I came up with that on my own. 
Well, let me let me start this for a second because I want to lead into something for you to talk about. Uh, you made a great point that a next uh, a next sort of pressure point for the industry might be the quarterly report. Maybe that would bring studios and streamers to the table. Mid-October, there's going to be the next quarterly report. And then January of 2024, do they want to be there mid-October explaining how they've thrown all their movies to the side? They've got nothing in development. Their cupboards are going to be bare. Do they want to do that again in January? No, they do not. So that could be a pressure point. The Emmy Awards obviously are not a big deal in terms of television. In terms of Well, they moved. They moved. Well, they, no, but they've never been the same sort of weight that the Oscars had, at least symbolically. And, of course, they have... They have paused the Emmys. They don't have a new date yet, but they're going to do that. And now we have the studios rethinking their holiday schedules since the strikes will not be over. And how can they promote Dune 2, The Color Purple, The Marvels? A gazillion movies are moving over. Movies that were promised for 2024 or like maybe it'll be 2025. It's just creating a huge ripple effect. And of course, it doesn't just affect the actors and the writers and the studios. It affects everybody and not just the movie industry. When you don't have that season of movie promotion, you don't have premieres and you don't have the award circuit, that affects the fashion industry, luxury brands, TV, print, and online, the fan publicity machine, and all those ancillary business that depend on award season and movie premieres. They're providing the banquets, they're providing the waiters, they're doing you know all sorts of stuff. So it's really having a massive ripple effect. And I hope that the success of Barbie and Oppenheimer strikes fear into the studios because we have had several years of nightmarish box office where nothing could be done. You had to just shut down. We can see people are ready to come back to the movies we have not had enough movies, enough diverse movies to hit our previous box office numbers. But when we get good movies, people flock to the theaters. Clearly, they're willing to go. And now the studios determine not to come back to the table until they feel like the writers or actors are ready to break. They're guaranteeing a nightmare scenario for the next year. I, I'm we're, waiting we're for the government in to fall get involved. of 2024. And this is, they're determined to just wait it out when they know, oh my God, we finally have a chance to come back. Clearly people are ready. We need to get this machine back in action as soon as possible, or we're going to screw this over and maybe people won't come back next time. Because if you've got a year and a half of empty stores, empty shelves and the movie theaters, that's, you know, people could fall out of the habit. That's what they were worried about. Now we know they haven't. They're ready to come back and they should say, oh dear God, we're spoiling and ruining this moment. Instead of saying we can move color purple to, I don't know, summer of 2024, they should be saying, oh, my God, we need to get to the negotiating table. Is there any chance that they will understand the moment they are throwing away here? Well, I will tell you that just like the the tele this strike is mostly about television, right? I mean, we've, we've kind of talked about why and the, the residual payments and, and the streaming. But, that, but, you know, writers and actors go back and forth all the time. So it's not like Correct. movies don't matter. It, you know, it's everybody's affected by TV and movies. They're intertwined and symbiotic. Right. However, it's, it leans heavily, both in the writers and the actors, it leans heavily on the television demands. However... Right, because there actors are, and writers go back and forth. Right. There are a few motion picture issues here, film industry things here, and theatrical especially. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, but th because of that, because it's mostly television-centric or leans, you know, 60-40, whatever you want to call it, uh, they're not as concerned. I will say 
that why, why aren't was, they concerned? TV is a huge industry. What are you talking about? No, no, no. Meaning that the studios aren't saying, well, well, you know, we better race back because Barbie's a huge hit. They're basically saying, look, that's a fluke. That's They're one. screwing up. Well, the same thing. They're screwing up the TV schedule as well. well They're ruining we, people. You know, people will stop. You know, cables falling off a cliff. Do they really want to have the shelves bare for the next year and have just reality junk? Not that you can't make good reality. I love American Idol, or at least I did. I mean, you know, come on. Uh, this is, you've got Lakeith Steinfeld, right? Wasn't he television? You know, he's TV, now he's movie. He's back and forth. He's making indie films. He's making this, he's making that. Now he's in the movies. You know, this is how it works. They're all symbiotic. And to think, well, it's just TV, that's crazy. Well, I think that one of the, the things you've kind of pointed out, the biggest problem is nobody's sitting down and talking. And there are no negotiations taking place. We thought it might be a little slow in August. We thought that. We talked about that here with Jonathan Handel. Uh, As far as the TV schedule is concerned, really it's the main uh, traditional players, NBC, CBS, ABC, the traditional networks, the cable networks that care about that. Netflix doesn't care about a a television Fall season. Yeah. However, what they're going to care about is, oh, I don't know, around March of 2024 when they're like, hey, let's put out, oh, we don't have anything anymore. We, we used all right. that stuff up. So yep. at some point, and that's kind of one of the problems that you have here is that you have these traditional legacy media companies that allowed the the streamers, the pure play streamers, you've got you know Netflix, Apple, Amazon, to come into the AMPTP, the Association of Motion Picture and Television Producers, which was set up specifically to negotiate these labor contracts. They allowed them in, and the problem is that the pure play folks and the legacy folks, they have different needs. But none of, none of them seem to be pushing to come to the table and negotiate. You act like they're at loggerheads. No, half of them no, are screaming, no, no. we got to get to the table. And the other half are saying, hell no, I don't care. They're no, no, all they're all saying like, yeah, we should maybe, you know, maybe let's talk Let's to break them their backs. But let's, uh, let me correct you. You said nobody is at the negotiating table. You're wrong. Well, the SAG writers, and WGA. The writers <laughs> and SAG-AFTRA are at the negotiating table and the other seats are empty. They have said repeatedly, we are ready to sit down and talk. You want to wait four months because you think we're going to crack when we can't pay our rent? That's, that's the only reason for delaying talking. That's the only reason the, to not big work problem, it out and make a deal. The big problem here is that you don't have anybody that can come swinging in on their vine and say, don't worry, I'll save you. I'll fix the whole thing. It could have been Bob Iger, but unfortunately, he kind of blew himself up with that CNBC uh, interview. He has enough on his plate. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, Peter Chernin has been talked about. Uh, I, you know, the publicists are complaining, hey, get these we're, people. We're available. We're ready to come in. Yeah, and you well, know what? We've helped avoid other strikes. Our invisible hand has helped in a lot of other areas. There are strikes happening everywhere, or unhappily, uh, strikes have been avoided in some places. Broadway avoided a strike. The theater crew union, IATSE, made a tentative yeah. deal for Broadway. That's great. Other unions, there's like 14 that work on Broadway, have already done so. Documentary Crews, the Documentary Worker Union, struck a deal with the International Documentary Association with a two-year deal. That wasn't easy because the IDA has been in internal turmoil, but it sounds like a really good deal. $30 an hour minimum, a minimum 20 to 30% salary increase to make for the years where they weren't getting anything and cover up for inflation, and a guaranteed annual rate increase, which everybody needs. That's why a minimum wage should be pegged to inflation differential pay for additional labor, and a comprehensive reproductive health policy. And the DWU said, hey, you know what? 
We're calling out to everybody else. You're affecting projectionists, festival workers, programmers, documentary crews, and more. We implore film institutions across the board to take note. Now is the time to make our field a place that champions its laborers. The world is watching. Our collective fight is only beginning. And the fight that's happening in Hollywood, of course, unfortunately, is to say, which deal can we cancel first, right? Force majeure is coming into effect. Right. I mean, I, I mentioned the in previous uh, episodes the that I thought earnings reports would drive one or more of these companies, especially the legacy companies, to go, you know what, we've, we've got to fix this. Um, mm-hmm. we, we could do it once. We could do it twice. We could do it in October again. We could say, hey, remember, we're still doing But look, look, we saved all this money. We're, we're revenue positive because, you know, we're, we're earnings positive because we, we're not spending all this money. We're taking money in, but we're and not you spending have no all future. This. Look, my grocery store shelves are empty. I didn't exactly. buy any food to sell. And not only that, but now I have to overcorrect next year. And, oh, look at my my second and third quarter of 2024 when I had to spend twice as much because I had to make all this content all at once. Uh, You know, and per variety, studios are ready to cancel deals with writers as early as today, August 1st, the day that we are recording the show. They're going to start invoking force majeure and cancel some deals, clear out the shelves. Well, I can tell you that the writers I've been speaking to. Uh, all their deals have been canceled. They've been told essentially by their agents who are dealing with the studios, yeah, your deal's canceled. You're not going back. Well, we shouldn't be too shocked by what's going on because Hollywood reflects America. Hollywood is just like everywhere else. Strikes are rising across the country as workers feel displaced and disempowered. They see their CEOs and top execs making massive multiples of what they do and their benefits disappear, their work gets harder and longer, they're doing more for less money. UPS strikers were almost about to strike, but boom, the strike was averted. And what was a big thing those drivers were striking for? Part-time workers was a major issue. They wanted to make sure part-time workers got the same amount as full-time workers for several reasons. One, they deserve it. And two, then you're not just avoiding full-time workers because you don't want to, you know, you can get part-time workers cheaper. Then you suddenly have no full-time workers. It's well, like that, Walmart with 30, 30 hour a week employees. Well, and that, you, point, mm-hmm. you pointed that out with uh, one of the uh, articles in the New York Times talking about how they've taken the writing, uh, uh, basically becoming a television writer. It used to be a great gig. Right. used to make, you know, okay, granted, there were some people, you know, that 1%, that 2%, that 3% that were like, they you know, Shonda job. Rhimes, and they were right. like, you know, big deals. Uh, and then, the, but, you know, most were just, you know, work a day, middle income, making you know, for in LA, what would be middle income, you know, a hundred to $200,000 a year. Of course, remember your agent gets a lot of that. You have an agent, a publicist, a lawyer. They, are, by the time you get it, you're like, oh, okay. I guess my kid's not going to private school. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, you would make your year every year. You'd have to, you know, work again. You'd work 38, you know, weeks of, out of the year. Now you're lucky if you can work 20. And it's because they've basically broken up all that writing into, you know what? Just work the 20 weeks and then you can go. You're not going to go to the production. We don't need you for production. And in fact, just work 10 weeks, uh, break, up, break the story down, and then we'll give it to these three writers. We don't need 10 of you anymore. We'll just give it to these three guys and they'll do the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, you know, and I think looking at UPS drivers striking and having part-time workers front of mind is akin to the background actors issue that we have in the uh, actor strike. The fact that they're saying... You know, a big chunk of our people are background actors. Every, a lot of people have been one at one point or another. They're like 
of all SAG-AFTRA members work as a background actor in any given year or something like that. I have the numbers down below. But they're recognizing that what affects the little guy is affecting all of them and that they have to make sure they've got their back. And then Jeopardy! Past winners were not going to cross picket lines to take part in the Tournament of Champions. Ken Jennings, who I think is doing a better job as host than Mayim Bialik, Ken Jennings crossed the picket line in order to step in when Mayim Bialik said, I can't do that. I cannot do that when writers are not involved. He did. He stepped in. He for whatever reason, that he decided that was the right thing to do. But they were going to have a tournament of champions, and more and more past winners were saying, no, we're not going to do that. And so, rightly, Jeopardy said, you know what? We will delay the tournament of champions until the end of the strike. Well, can, can I just, uh, a couple things here. You mentioned background actors in 20%. That's an interesting figure, right? Well, I there's hope I got it right. <laughs> well, there's 160,000 members in sag After, right? Right. Uh, you mentioned that 32,000 of them yeah, one, one in, in five. Yeah, 20%. I got it right. Did, okay. did, yeah. Less than 12.7% of SAG after members actually earned the minimum or what is called the eligibility threshold, which is currently $26,470 a year. If you earn that much, then you, you qualify for SAG after health insurance, which is a good deal. Out of 160,000 members, that would be 20,320 people. Right. So 140,000 don't have health insurance. And as not we through know, SAG-AFTRA. Not through right, SAG-AFTRA. Not through, well, right. They do, well, that's their job, though. They're not paying $800 a month to have, you know, health. And, you know, that ain't working too well either. If you make no, no, 26, but, but so, so sa- 26,000 a year, you're struggling. Well, some of these SAG-AFTRA members are over 65. They're retired. They're no yeah. longer in the industry. They did a couple commercials. They're in SAG-AFTRA. That's why they don't vote because they, you know, they're like, ah, I don't care. I'm not in that business anymore. I did it. But, you know. I, but as we know, in, in, in any time you're talking about actors, 90% of them are unemployed at any time. That's, a, that's sort of a rule of thumb. Yes. So, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a big mess. We're going to skip down to the next section. Um, but I feel like, you know... <laughs> Uh, the studio should be scared. They should be saying, we have momentum. We have the wind at our back. We know what deal we're going to make. <laughs> you know, they must have in mind some deal they're going to make unless they think actors and writers are going to say, we give up. We'll do what you want. <laughs> I'm waiting for the government to, to get involved because the yeah. government has allowed this, this group, the AMPTP, to collectively bargain. So they have allowed it uh, instead of saying, nope, you're going to have to go Studio by studio, SAG after, and you're going to have to go and, and do it with in, individually, which means that you'd go to Warner Brothers, you'd cut your deal, you'd go to Netflix, you'd cut your deal. Lionsgate does it individually. They're, they're not a part of AMPTP, which is why all their productions have gotten not waivers, but they have signed interim agreements. What is an interim agreement? It is the agreement that SAG after actually wants. They're saying, this is the contract we want. Now, it's probably not the contract we're going to get, but if you're willing to sign that as a production that is not with a struck company, meaning mm-hmm. these big legacy companies or the, the streamers, then you know we'll allow you to continue production and you can do publicity and promotion, like for some of the ones that are going to uh, the, the festivals. Uh, Bradley Cooper, though, even though he, he gets a bit of a waiver on this because he's a director... Uh, he is not going to Venice where his film will be playing on the Leonard Bernstein film that he's done. Uh, and there's a bunch of other films. Uh, I can't, Isn't uh, he G- the director? He's the director, right. And so, but he's not, he's not going, even though he could technically go. Uh, they've pulled uh, Challengers, I think, the, the Zendaya film. 
Right. Uh, There's which, lots of films not you know playing fall festivals. So there are indie movies. They don't look like they're going to be empty uh, events. You know, Toronto looks good. Venice looks good. There's stuff happening. But yeah, there's lots of movies that are being affected because people can't promote the movies. Yeah. And, and Viola Davis said, even though we'll get an interim agreement, you know what? It just feels wrong to be working while everybody else is. Yeah, that was that's a, I I respect her, and that must have been a very difficult decision because you're telling people who desperately need work that they can't work. You know, you could make this project happen. It's probably a project she is, cares about and is passionate about. And that means it may never happen Correct. when you pull out like this. So that must have been a very difficult call. And that's the sort of stuff that's happening up and down the line. Not just big name actors, but littler people, smaller people. A lot of people can't afford to say, no, I won't do it. You know, they're, they're not going to break picket lines, but they couldn't afford if they got a job that was approved to say, oh, I'm not going to morally do that. They would just say, I have to pay my bills. You know, they, they would say, I just have no choice, you know, and I'm willing to do it because it is, you know, properly approved. She has that luxury, but, you know, I know, I'm certain that was a difficult choice for her. So it's a really big deal having all these people and all the repercussions of a strike. Oh, I see what you're doing there. You're talking about going on strike yourself. No, I get it. I get it. You want to go on strike. Oh, no, you said big deal, didn't you? There are no more deals. They're actually being cut. Oh, I know what you're doing. You're moving us along into Big Deal or Big Whoop, our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Our first story this week, Jason Aldean. Discuss. I'm, I'm <laughs> right, <kidding>. exactly. <laughs> this is how, let me grab this one. This, I'll make it shorter. This is how much can happen when the podcast skips a week. We are just talking about the Jason Aldean story when there's like 8,000, you know, back and forth on this, but you're all familiar with the video. Country Music Television yanked the video. Uh, uh, but that for, has for to what stop song? It. Name the song. Try, try oh, that out in pardon. a small town. They know try that in a small town. Try yeah. that in a small town. All right. So the video came out. The song was already moving up the charts. Uh, the video just lit fire to it in terms of people paying attention and commenting on it. It's, uh, I think it's fair to say, controversial. And I'm a little surprised country music television yanked the video from rotation, but they did. Now, people have denounced it as uh, encouraging vigilantism, lynching, for all sorts of reasons you've probably heard about already. In concert, Jason Aldean denounced cancel culture while his fans chanted, USA, USA. And of course, you know, he's right. Cancel culture has struck again. Jason Aldean's song, Try That in a Small Town, is the number one song on the Billboard Hot 100, followed by Morgan Wallen's Last Night, another canceled classic, and the Luke Combs cover of Fast Car. This is the first time in history that three country songs have led the Hot 100 at number one, number two, and number three. So that's cool. And two of the guys, this is why I wanted to say, let's not use the nonsense ideas of cancel culture. People do stuff, there are repercussions. There always have been, there always will be. There's no machine that can cancel anything if people want to watch it or read it or listen to it or see it. You know, people will do it. And here's perfect proof. Jason Aldean is not suffering, <laughs> you know, and uh, there you are. So what do you think? Uh, you know, I, I didn't understand the big uh, kerfuffle over fast car. I didn't understand What do you mean why? kerfuffle? There was uh, there was no there was no controversy over that. You mean oh, why is okay. it a hit? No no yeah, no no no. no. All, I thought there was, it, only it was a hit. Morgan Wallen. Morgan Wallen is the guy who used a racial slur in a video when he was drunk and had to step away when his album Dangerous was becoming the biggest album in the world. And then he came back just as strong as ever. So just like Jason Aldean, Morgan Wallen faced real repercussions uh, and yet came back stronger than ever. So you know the idea. He said, "I'm going to take a break. Going to do some work on myself." And he came back, and people. 
had no problem accepting him again. And he has last night as a huge hit and his new double album is a huge hit. So both Jason Aldean and Morgan Wallen are huge hits and put a lie to the idea that there's some sort of cancel culture that will destroy lives on a whim. It's like, no, they had very reasonable reasons why people might criticize and critique what they have said or done. And that's okay. And they've argued back and people, you know, made up their minds. And in terms of audiences, people are happy to keep listening to their music. Luke Holmes just did a great cover of the Tracy Chapman song, Fast Car. Right. Uh, and by the way, apparently now Seven, S-E-V-E-N, like the movie, uh, is by Jungkook featuring Lato. I'm sure I pronounced one of those what? wrong. Uh-huh. Uh, is number one with uh, the, the three songs you mentioned by Aldine, Wallen, and Combs, two, three, and four. What do you mean in, in the newest chart? In the newest chart, yeah. Right, so we're reporting on a, yeah, we're, you know, this is Monday, so the next newest chart came out. So we're, you know, we're capturing yeah. up on two to three weeks of info. That often happens during the show, we get the latest chart. So yeah, so they were number one last week at number one, number two, and number three. So that's cool for country, but in terms of them, uh, let's just be clear, Jason Aldean's defense of the song is ridiculous. The lyrics of his song have nothing to do with small town values and people standing up for each other. It's strictly about, you do something we don't like, you better not try that in a small town because we will hunt you down. Literally, like, see how far you get. <laughs> you know, this is about I'm going to kick your ass if you say or do something I don't like. The whole song is uh, disappointing, to say the least. And let's not forget Jason Alding was on stage in Vegas during the worst gun massacre in U.S. history. And to his credit, he said a little bit later, you know what? Background checks aren't thorough enough. Guns are too easy to purchase. And ironically, because he and his wife have totally embraced a right-wing memes and attitudes about COVID and all sorts of stuff. Uh, A concert on July 15th, he succumbed to heat stroke and had to cancel some shows. I'm happy to report he's healthy again and started performing on July 20th, so that's good to hear, but I wonder what he thinks of the climate crisis. Remember, (laughs) you know, when when, uh, the songs about small towns were about, like, eight-year-old boys running with a dime in their hand up to the bus stop to pick up a paper for their old man. Yeah, Springsteen. Sitting or on his lap. Small town. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. I was wondering if anybody... I was born in a small town. I thought you were going to reference John Mellencamp, but yeah, no, Springsteen's from Nebraska, one of the best albums of all time. Actually, Speaking I believe uh, my hometown is from Born in the USA, if I'm not I'm, mistaken. Right. John Mellencamp is small town, and yes. Springsteen's song is from... Uh, oh, yeah, I beg your pardon. I apologize. You're correct. Yeah, my well, hometown is from Born in the USA. Well most, done. Stick with music for just a second, okay? Uh, Because literally everyone is unhappy about the money they are making from music streaming. I am. I'm unhappy about it. Michael, I know you are too. Also, we we, we don't have albums. but Why even bother having a hit song? That's what I say. Exactly. Labels feel they don't get enough, and the streamers moan about having to pay so much to the labels for the music, and they're often losing money to begin with. And God knows... Artists and songwriters don't make nearly enough money. The publishers aren't making enough money. So what do you do? What do you do? You know what? Here's what you do. You grow the pie. That is, you raise prices because the one group that doesn't seem unhappy are music consumers who hadn't seen their monthly subscription price raise in a very long time. That is now over. And that's because Amazon Music, they raised their price, $11. So that's a modest raise. To $11. Yeah, a month in North America. For access at least to the highest quality streams, by the way. Apple Music raised their price to $11 a month 
Tidal raised its price to $11 a month. I sense a theme. Now YouTube Music has raised its price to $11 a month, to which I say, oh yeah, that's right, YouTube Music. Totally forgot (laughs) about them. Uh, And yes, finally, Spotify is raising its monthly fee in the United States to $11 a month. They're still losing money based on their quarterly reports. Uh, Its family plan, by the way, is also increasing to $17, bringing it in line with other competitors. Oh, and not just in the U.S., they're also raising prices in 52 other countries. Big deal or big whoop? Well, it's a big deal. It's long overdue. The price should not stay the same forever. That's crazy. You know, things raise in prices. Uh, they can't really do a password crackdown, I guess. Um, I, this is not the same issues uh, for a music account unless it's a family plan. But that raises the question of, you know what? Uh, they need to work on their family plans. Those are probably way too cheap. Uh, that's where a lot of money can be made. Right now, Spotify is at 220 million people worldwide who are paying a premium price to have access to Spotify. They've got 550 million active monthly losers and, users, and they're still losing $250 million. <laughs> so there you go. Well, and, I'll, I'll say this, you know, mm-hmm. with the family plan, I can't speak for everybody. I can speak for the people that I know who have it, including myself. I have Spotify. My kids use it way, 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 way more than I do. If that was $20, I'd say, hey, you know what? Actually, That's you get- totally fine. You, or, or let's say it's $25, okay? Yeah. I'd say, yeah, you get a plan, you get a plan. I'll just keep my Apple Music. Thank you very much. And Spotify right. would you know, then go away. They'd get their $22, not their $25. Wait, what? In other words, I'm saying there is a point where- You've got, you've got four people in your family. $25 for four people is $6 a person. That's cheaper than $11. Right. But, you know, if you're just saying you prefer a different service, that's a different issue from the fact that you've got a bunch of people in your household who all use music streaming and it's cheaper to have a family plan and it could increase by $8 and it would still be cheaper, much cheaper than individual, you know, than what you would pay individually. So there's room to grow there where your people still get a great deal, but the companies will be pulling in more money. Now, Music Business Worldwide is a great website. They do terrific analysis of the music industry. We link to them in our show notes all the time, though we can't seem to get anybody there on the air to talk to us. But anyway, they were estimating how much more money would be brought in by what Spotify was doing. This raises a lot of issues because you have to guesstimate and use you know rough figures because you don't have access to their books. But they... They, they were being very conservative, and they say, looking at the U.S. only, this ticket, this raise in prices for Spotify should bring in at least $250 million and up to half a billion dollars annually. That's conservative when you look at $250 million. Toss in Canada, and you're looking at $320 million on the low end. Add in Europe, that would add another $450 million annually from this price increase right now. That's using a very conservative estimate. So if you include the U.S., Canada, and Europe, this new increase by Spotify should bring in a conservative $775 million annually from Spotify alone. That's a lot more money when you're growing the pie. So uh, which one do you, are you on Spotify, Apple? I'm on Amazon Music because Spotify was not offering the premium audio quality without paying a lot of extra money. And I just, and, and Amazon Music was making it available uh, without a huge uh, uh, premium. So I went for it. By the way, uh, they can control it with password crackdowns. And here's how. Let's say I give you my Spotify password and I'm at the gym and I'm running and I'm doing my best Rocky Balboa impersonation. I'm going to fly now. And then you decide, oh, I'm going to listen to Spotify on on Sperling's account. Guess what? It stops. 
It's oh, tops on a, my. You mean my a family account. plan, right? I, I mean, no, no, they, not yeah, the family plan. Not right? The family yeah, they don't plan. need to do password because it, you can't have two going at the same time. Right. Exactly. Unless you, yeah, so they don't need to. They can't have success in password crackdown unless it involves the family plan. Right. Keep going. Okay. Well, here's something that uh, just broke. Remember that interview that we kind of mentioned earlier? The Disney CEO Bob Iger did with CNBC mm-hmm. during the big CEO conference in Sun Valley, Idaho. Remember that sure. big interview he did? Yeah, I do. Well, I- I'm sure Iger wishes you didn't because that was the interview in which he said the Guild's demands were unreasonable and unrealistic and that linear television business is declining faster than he had anticipated, even though everybody kind of warned him that was happening at least seven years ago. And oh yeah, he also said maybe television isn't part of Disney's core offering in the future, which is not a good idea. If you're wanting to sell it, say, it's not doing that great, but we want you to buy it. Right. Exactly. (laughs) And by the way, look at my new yacht. Yeah. And, and, uh, Oh, by the way, um, uh, television division. No, 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 no. We're not selling you tomorrow. I mean, or this week, or you know what guys just calm down. You're, you're cool. Uh, now Puck, uh, you know, Jonathan Handel, uh, Puck. Dot news. Yeah, that's, that's where you get it. Uh, Puck is the name of the outlet. Puck.news is the, where you get him online. They are reporting that Iger has asked two former Disney senior executives who we've talked about on this program earlier, Kevin Mayer and Tom Staggs, to consult on the future of the company's linear properties, including ESPN. Now, here's the thing. The reason we talked about Mayer and Staggs in the past, because they were once the heir apparent to Iger for the CEO role at Disney before he and the board passed them over. Mayer was instrumental in all those M&A deals that built up Disney into what it is today, while Staggs was, he did everything from, you know, the head of theme parks division, he was the chief operating officer, the chief financial officer, both left the company after they were passed over. And eventually they said, you know what, let's go out to dinner and talk about our woes. And then they teamed up and uh, they launched an investment firm called Candle Media, which has been busy scooping up things like Coco Melon, Reese Witherspoon's Hello Sunshine, and other big-name content companies. They've been cutting huge deals. Mayer and Staggs have both been engaged, but here's the thing. They've been engaged separately, not as a team. Talk what? about awkward. They work at the same company, Candle Media, and each individually is now consulting with Disney on certain oh, projects. Disney has engaged them on individual. Well, why would they have a team deal? That would be weird. Yeah, well, I well, guess, I don't know. Iger's looking back to Disney's future, hoping to move either Mayer or Staggs as the next CEO. I don't know. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? Uh, it's a big whoop. I think it would be awkward if one of them was making a deal with Disney and consulting and the other wasn't. That would seem to be more awkward. Like, hey, hey, how you doing, Joe? You know, that would <laughs> seem to me the more awkward situation in terms of dynamics at your company, Candle Media. In terms of this being a big deal for Iger, it's not a big deal until, um, until you believe he actually wants to see somebody take over the company and he walks away. Right. Which he might, he might uh, wish he... He never came back. Do you care about the American theater collapsing? Uh, yeah. Oh, did I skip that story? Eesh. You know, this is the problem. Uh, there's too much in our show notes. We just have way too much in our show notes because from Australia, we now hear that theater is in danger thanks to the exploding costs of budgets and a similar rise in ticket prices. Theater is becoming opera, they say. In New York City, we talked about it a little bit earlier, another theatrical institution is going under. The Metropolitan Playhouse is closing after 31 years. The public theater is laying off more as are other cultural institutions around the country. 
author Isaac Butler, who wrote an excellent biography of acting called The Method. He has an op-ed in the New York Times looking at the collapsing industry and calling on the government to step in immediately before the ecosystem is gone forever. Because remember, when you lay people off and they go into other careers and other, other walk, you know, lines of work, they don't necessarily come back. The New York Times and The Hollywood Reporter and many others are all covering this regional theater crisis. Big deal or big whoop? Well, it's definitely a big deal. The American Theater has a long feature studying this issue and a list of organizations that have shut down in the last three years. It's an existential crisis, the sort of thing we thought movie theaters might face. And uh, there has been consolidation and little guys have, have fallen away, but we're not seeing entire you know, major cities abandoned with no movie theater chains to talk of but that's what's happening in theater it's getting really really serious and hopefully somebody in the administration can say wow we need to step in and help this out or it's going to be gone forever you can't build it back up next week if it's gone it's gone for good that sounds like uh well inside baseball in fact inside baseball (laughs) is where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing We'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. And we often try to segue into it a lot smoother than I just did. (laughs) Now, I know, Michael, you want to talk about Netflix and everybody was talking about Netflix after their earnings call. Everybody was Netflix, Netflix, Netflix. Why? Because they are the only ones when when all those AMPTP producers are crying poor saying, we haven't figured streaming out yet. We're losing billions of dollars. We're losing hundreds of millions of dollars. And here comes Netflix to say, uh, we made $1.5 billion in cash. Is that good? <laughs> well, you know, as, as you said, we were talking earlier, you said uh, people used to say, I want my MTV. Now they're saying, I want my Netflix. And the company, we talked about this a uh, few seconds ago, they're cracking down on password sharing in certain territories, including the US, very slowly. Uh, now, unless you're sharing the same physical space, Netflix does not want you to share passwords with someone, even a child at school, like at, at in college or in another home or really with that friend you casually hand you know who handed out your your password two years ago and you kind of forgot about them remember them yeah you're right now i know there's a whole bunch of people listening who are going oh actually i do remember doing that to a couple of people uh (laughs) people predicted chaos when netflix started doing this but by and large people either shrugged their shoulders paid a little extra to add another account or The person who was kind of mooching and stealing decided to fork over their own account. In fact, uh, I actually heard a a conversation where a mother and and, and a teenage child was like, you know, we're using my my mother-in-law's Netflix account. It's it's about time we should get our own. I heard this like, you know, (laughs) standing in line at the grocery store. I was like, oh, look at that. Who knew? Yeah, it's it's shocking. I mean, uh, it's a a success story, isn't it? It's a good... uh, indication of what maybe the audio streamers can do as well all right what happened to netflix you know we raised they raised the price we've raised our prices uh they've cracked down on uh, sharing maybe we can crack down on our family plans get a little more money out of them while still making them an attractive option well and and uh i know that they added two million subscribers last quarter because in part because of this uh well i I, wait no they they predicted they'd add two million that's what it is that's that's what i'm remembering Yeah, and instead they added 6 million subscribers worldwide for a total of 238 million worldwide, in large part because of all these crackdowns they're doing with passwords. Now, keep in mind, some of these have, you know, some, some territories have cheaper tiers or it's cheaper. They don't 
earn as much per subscriber. They now have an ad tier. They got rid of their basic tier. So they're basically pushing you to the premium tier where you're paying $17 a month, or you can pay your $7 a month and get ads, but they want you to do either. No more $11 or $9 tier. It's either. And why? Because they're making more money when you watch some commercials. Yes. So the cheaper thing when you see some ads is bringing in more overall revenue. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah, go, go figure. Advertising works. Who knew? Um, by the way, feel free to sponsor us if you would like to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I, I got, I keep, Michael, you get these, these emails all the time from publicists and they're like, hey, uh, available on DVD and Blu-ray, you know, let us know if you want a screener. And I'm like, I do want a screener, but I've got nothing to play it on uh, <laughs> at all. At, at all. Uh, and streaming is more popular than ever. Cable and broadcast still reign supreme. Nielsen does a monthly snapshot of video streaming. And in June, a flood of kids out of school pushed streaming to its biggest share of video viewing than ever before. Of course, the way Nielsen measures video streaming, cable broadcast, video game plays, and even like, you know, old people like me who still watch physical media like DVDs and Blu-rays whenever Mm -hmm. we can figure out how to turn on the DVD player and which you know, button to press on the receiver to get it to go flow through to the TV. That's my <laughs> biggest problem. Uh, you know, I'm not that old, but I'm getting there. Uh, I really should read these things first, by the way, when I'm doing these. I'm not, I'm not that old, okay? It would help, it would help. Yeah. Uh, but in any case, video streaming taking off. I'm looking for the button on the receiver to, to get the DVD to play on the TV. I stopped ordering DVD screeners a while ago. What about you, Michael? I haven't had I haven't had nothing but links for a long time. Same with yeah. books and music; it's all digital now. They don't make it available. Yeah, now they're ma- like some of these like uh, music box films. They're like, "Hey, let us know." Or Kino Lorber. I'm like, uh, I have okay. a Blu-ray player. I've actually bought something recently or look watched a movie on Blu-ray because it wasn't available on a streamer. And of course, a lot of stuff falls through the gaps. And in fact, you can see uh, there's some prestige to having your thing coming out on blu-ray especially if your show is going to disappear from your library of hbo max and or amazon or whatever it might be you like it'd be nice to have a record of that show and it's not just in the ether somewhere uh, maybe you have a show on paramount plus i wish the naked not the naked gun but police squad the great short run sitcom created by the guys who did airplane they created this brilliant tv series starring leslie nielsen it came and it went It's a cult classic, and they loved it so much they eventually made it into a movie, the Naked Gun movies, which were quite successful. And I don't know why they're not available to stream on Paramount+, Plus, but happily, I own the Naked Police Squad on Blu-ray. So, you know, fine, you're not going to show it on Paramount+, Plus, but I'd love to send people to it, and it's not there yet. So Paramount+, Plus, however, does have some good news. They finally hit 1% of that total making it one of 11 streamers that get listed once hitting that mark. If you hit at least 1% of the total viewing for a month on video streaming, then they include you on that list. So you've got you know, YouTube at 8.8%, Netflix at 8.2%, Hulu at 3.5%, Amazon Prime at 3.2%, yeah, we still say Amazon, Disney at 2%, and all the rest at 1.4% down to 0.9%, including like HBO Max, Tubi, Peacock, Paramount+, Plus, Roku, and Pluto. Now, why are we naming? Now, congrats to Paramount Plus. And if you want your numbers to get even bigger, put Police Squad on your streamer. Now, why are we naming all these companies? Because we want to tell you this. Subscribe to all 11 on the list and you'll pay anywhere like 
from $7 to $20 for Netflix. There's a range depending on whether you have ads or not, if that's an option. Add it all up for Netflix and Disney and Hulu and ESPN, Amazon Prime, HBO Max, Peacock, Paramount. You're going to be paying about $50 to $80 a month for about eight channels. How much? So, Fifty to eighty dollars, depending if you don't want to watch ads. You can be paying fifty to eighty. Eight channels at ten dollars a channel is, is not a surprising number. You if see, you're I still watch have cable. A lot of ads, you can get it down to fifty. If you have cable, right? Exactly. You have cable. You can get a stream over the air streamer like YouTube TV for seventy five dollars a month. Guess what? You're already at a hundred and hundred twenty hundred and fifty dollars. Well, so I wanted to watch the U.S. Uh, women's national team play soccer last week. I was away. I was staying at a place that had like a, a Roku, but you, you had to basically sign into your own account. So I signed into Spectrum TV thinking, hey, I'm a Spectrum subscriber. I want to watch Fox because that's the, you know, what the U.S. women's national team is playing on in the World Cup. I don't know why I want to watch them since they don't seem to, they seem to think they're playing golf where the lowest score wins. Uh, but they, I couldn't do it. They wouldn't let me do it because they were like, hey, you're not at home. You got to be on a, a spectrum uh, Wi-Fi to, to allow this. I was like, oh, I'm sure there's a reason for this, but it's annoying. And I'm paying yeah. them. It is annoying. But uh, do you think people are going to I mean, already they're sort of, uh, I think what's going to happen is that they've just screwed over the old ecosystem and they're not going to find there's a lot fewer people with a lot fewer channels and a lot less crossover. You can't just casually say, oh, I want to check something out because you have to subscribe before you can look at it. So well, I think it's going to have a big long-term repercussions. I don't think, uh, look, despite what you would hear from Bob Iger, linear Linear, linear television is kind of slowly fading, but it's not dead yet. No, but I mean, uh, they still make money off vinyl, but it's only a billion dollars compared to the huge amount of money you make with other stuff. So, I mean, it's not dead. Oh, I'm sorry, people. Got texts coming in about my mom and sepsis and who's going to spend the night in, the, in her, in her uh, hospital room and it distracted me for a minute. I apologize. Sperling, we're at the over an hour mark. Yes. And 472 people died last week, and they're that all is not deeply true. important to me. It well, was yeah. only 471. And you didn't even know that last one. And they're all deeply important to us. I will, well, I, will, I will focus on the ones that are a little unique, as one of our listeners suggested. And we have some big, big names, and maybe you'll have a thought about them. I certainly won't go over their careers. But somebody that won't get a lot of attention and certainly deserves it. He is in, in our industry. That's movie exhibitor, distributor, and marketer Ray Price. He died at 75. Uh, or is it 76? I apologize. Um, he's not the country music singer Ray Price. That guy died a decade ago. This is Ray Price, the tireless champion of film, who really helped along generations of independent filmmakers. In his career, he ran indie theaters, worked as a distributor and marketer and production exec with an admirable track record of discovering and elevating women and people of color who went on to terrific careers. He championed the director Gurinda Chadha before she delivered the commercial smash Bendit Lake Beckham. He found films that hadn't worked, developed a new marketing campaign like a new poster, and turned those movies around like Alex Cox's Repo Man. When everyone passed on the John Sayles film, The Secret of Rowan Inish, he figured out how to market that family film to adults who saw it first and then returned with their kids in tow. He worked with Carl Franklin, Alison Anders, Wayne Wang, Tran An Hung, whose film The Scent of Green Papaya, Price helped steer towards an Oscar nomination, as well as films like The Great Santini, De Palma's Blowout, and many more. This guy is going to be missed. 
Yeah, and I, I am shocked that he was only 76. Not because, oh, I uh, ran into him and, oh, he looks so old. No, but like you, his experience. I'm like, how, yeah. how are you only 70? You should be like 910, given <laughs> all the people you've worked with and all. I mean, Blowout was in like the early 80s. So yeah. I, I'm impressed. Yeah, he's had a great career and really had an impact on people in exhibition and marketing and production that he worked with over the years. So it's a shame to see. Uh, no matter how long and lengthy your career is or how short, it's always sad when someone dies. Like actor Angus Cloud of HBO's Euphoria. He's dead at 25. He played the drug dealer Fez on the show, and he's a major character in the series. He grew bigger and bigger in the show as the first two seasons went on. Our in-house film and TV critic Aaron Rich said he gives a, quote, truly amazing performance, like really great End quote. Cloud was open about his struggles with mental health. A week before his death, Cloud's father died, and then Cloud himself died by suicide. Uh, at least he was able to talk about his struggles, and hopefully other people will learn, reach out, and get help, because there's people ready to help. Remember, you the, ever heard I, Dis- mm-hmm. remember the Sartre's quote, uh, show me a man who's committed suicide, and I'll show you somebody who two weeks later would have been in a completely different, uh, better place. And I, I could be wrong about who, you know, was a, a, a you know, French philosopher who said that about suicide. It's easy to say when you're not in the throes of a mental health crisis. But yeah, yes, exactly. it's true that be, hopefully he's trying to give you encouragement to recognize, please reach out for help because however dark and despairing it seems right now, that ain't the answer. Disney animator Randy Fulmer died at 73. He worked on Beauty and the Beast and The Lion King, among other Disney titles. And that's enough. Boy, I mean, already you're like, great job. But he had a really interesting career. He graduated from CalArts, launched his own animation company doing educational films, commercials, segments for Sesame Street and Saturday Morning TV. That led him to Don Bluth Studios, the company of the guy who broke away from Disney when its animation department was so moribund. He helped create special effects for video games produced on Laserdisc. Who knew that was a thing? But that was what Bluth did, at least on the side. Then he worked for John Dykstra of Star Wars fame and then went on to Filmation, doing Saturday morning shows like She-Ra, Princess of Power, and Ghostbusters. Finally, he joined Disney in 1987 for a three-month contract to help animate Toontown for the classic film Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Still one of the best films. Those three months stretched to 18 years, and he did everything. Animator, effects supervisor, producer, among other hats. His other credits at Disney include The Little Mermaid, Oliver and Company, and The Emperor's New Groove, but he's not done. He retired, picked up his childhood hobby of building musical instruments by launching Win Guitars. He created bespoke bass guitars for top musicians and even had a documentary film made about his work called Restrung. That's a hell of a career. Ah, it would have been better if it was strung out. <laughs> Oscar-winning screenwriter Bo Goldman died at 90. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, uh, Melvin and Howard. Uh, the Rose, Scent of a Woman, Shoot the Moon. Cuckoo's Nest, of course, one of only three films to sweep the top five Oscars. Best Picture, Best Director, Actor, Actress, and Screenplay. What are the other two? What, what are the other two what? That he that, wrote? That, that, that did that. That, that accomplished having winning the top five awards at the Oscars. They are It Happened One Night, Then One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and Then The Silence of the Lambs. If you oh, want to start okay. with something to celebrate Bo Goldman's life, start with Melvin and Howard. Two people died who were connected to a musical on Broadway about Sherlock Holmes called Baker Street. It was kind of a flop, but it got four Tony nominations, including one for costumes, another for the set, which it won. And the other two nominees, unfortunately, just died. Jerome Coopersmith wrote the book which is apparently much better than the songs. And uh, 
He went on to do a lot of interesting work in theater. He died at 97. The other nominee you'll know is actress Inga Swenson, who played Irene Adler in that show. That's that woman that foiled Sherlock Holmes. She had a hell of a career, including stage, where she was Tony nominated for you know, that musical and 110 in the Shade. She also starred in the TV miniseries North and South, but it was a brief arc on the primetime soap sitcom soap you know that show that parodied sitcoms with uh billy crystal and robert guillaume's benson that led to her being cast in the spinoff series benson where she got three emmy nominations for playing the sharp-tongued german cook who always butted heads with benson he would go she's driving me crazy and she'd say i hear you (laughs) from across the room hey it's a living she was 90 randy meisner co-founder of the eagles died at 77 he was in paco he walked away and was replaced by timothy b schmidt he backed Ricky Nelson. He worked with Linda Ronstadt. And then her backing band went and formed the Eagles with Glenn Fry and Don Henley. He was a singer on Take It to the Limit. And then he left the Eagles to go solo and was replaced by Timothy B. Schmidt. Well, I think Sinead he was O'Connor. just, he was so like, he just wanted to like hang out. He was always like, guys, take it easy. Take it easy. Okay? <laughs> that wasn't his song. That was, he said, take it to the limit. Oh, that was okay. him, not Take It Easy. Sinead O'Connor died at 56. One of the first albums I ever got to review for free, writing for my college newspaper, was The Lion and the Cobra. It just blew me away. I was like, oh my God, are all albums going to be this great? You know, it's just not like, wow, they send you an album. It's awesome. And if you're going to start, start with I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got, her debut album, The Lion and the Cobra, and I also love her EP, Gospel Oak. Tony Bennett died at 96. Come to our show notes and you can see a list that I have on my, my, my website where I list every album by every artist that I've ever heard. And you'll see some of the great, he has like 10 albums at least that are classics, great, great albums. Check out one of them. My favorite Tony Bennett story is when he was on the Grammys in 1991. That was for the album uh, Astoria, Portrait of the Artist, a comeback album for him. And he had a great song on that. He had his first Grammy nomination in 25 years. And they did a medley where like four or five jazz artists got to do like 90 seconds of their song. And Tony Bennett came out. He did like a shortened version of his song, When Do the Bells Ring for Me, which I could sing for you right now. It was a showstopper, unbelievable, wow, like this guy's back. The crowd is roaring. If he'd done the whole song, it would have been a Grammy moment for the ages. But he only had 90 seconds. The stage is turning, and up comes Harry Connick Jr., who's just been blown off the stage. I love Harry Connick Jr. I like Harry Connick. I've always seen him. I've seen him live. He's a very good performer. This is the worst performance I've ever seen him give. He follows Tony Bennett. He's dreadful. Maybe his, maybe his monitor piece was off. Maybe he was just blown away by Tony Bennett. It was just a bad, bad performance. And then he steps to the side of the stage and uh, Grammy goes to uh, Harry Connick Jr. And, you know, he just felt like, oh, I feel bad. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was embarrassing. And Pee Wee Herman, oh, my God, Pee Wee Herman is dead. Paul Rubin, actually, his alter ego. I love that show. I think that uh, this is a rare trick he pulled off. He satirized children's television with a terrific character and stage show that was geared towards adults. And then he turned around, made a great film, helped launch the career of Tim Burton, and then created an actual classic children's show. Not a mocking satire of it, not one with sort of adult stuff going on, but an actually genuine children's show that kids and adults can enjoy. The Pee Wee Herman show is just absolutely great. I can't think of anyone who's done that, mocked and satirized something, and also at the same time, or should I say a spoof? 
Maybe it's a spoof, spoofing something and then turning around and actually making a great one of that very thing. That is not easy to do. He was also a great talk show guest, especially with Letterman. I've been watching clips online. I've gotten to interview a lot of people. Some are on my list, like Dolly Parton, some others I'd really love to chat with. Paul Rubens was always one of them. So what a shame. Well, you know, what I did recently was find out that I am, I have a horrible memory because Mm -hmm. I, when 19, I think it was 87, 88, uh, I can't even remember now. It was in November that much. I I do remember. Uh, I went to see David Letterman while I was in high school. Oh, cool. And on it was Carol Liefer. You remember Carol Liefer? Mm -hmm. Uh, She's still around. She's a comedian. Uh, And Tony Bennett. And he was doing oh. this thing, you know, they finally were like, hey, we're in 30 Rockefeller Center. Let's go downstairs to where they give haircuts out. They literally were giving haircuts to people in 30 <laughs> Rock. And they were, you know, they had the, the, the barbershop chairs and the towels on the face for the shaves. And there was a, somebody getting a manicure right there while they were getting their haircut, like an old time, like barbershop. And they sent Tony Bennett was on the show and he sang and he, and he sits down and he says, hey, who's that over there, you know, playing? It's John Faddis, the trumpet player. You ah. know, he was the head of the you know, Carnegie Hall Jazz Band, very well-known trumpet player. Uh, and I'm like, and, you know, as a trumpet player, I'm like, oh, how did I not remember that? How did I not <laughs> remember? I didn't remember anything about this. I remember that Tony Bennett was there. I remember uh, that Letterman sent Tony Bennett down to get a haircut. And when they cut back to Tony Bennett getting the haircut, he wasn't actually getting a haircut. Like the guy was just like pretending to cut his hair because I'm sure Tony Bennett was like, hey, man, don't, don't cut my hair. Don't touch my hair. <laughs> um, and uh, I don't, I, if it wasn't for YouTube, I would not have remembered this at all. I had to look it up on YouTube to see if I could maybe find it. And I did. And I, didn't, I remembered like very, very little of it. That's hilarious. Well, Tony Bennett, gotta love you. Did you ever see him perform live? No. I, I did twice, and he's good. He was very, very good. Oh, yeah. He's got some great, great albums. Check him out. I got a list of my thing. If you're into music, my God, the guy had some great albums. And then when you're done listening to that, make sure you listen to next week's episode, okay, where you can find on any one of the podcast aggregators, wherever you get podcasts, whether it's iTunes or Google Podcasts or Microsoft Marketplace or Spotify, that's where you can find and subscribe to our program, Showbiz Sandbox. In fact, uh, if you rate and review the, our show and any one of those podcast aggregators, it helps us out when you do that, especially if you give it, you know, I don't know, like five. Five stars would be good. <laughs> um, but you can find that information on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's where you'll find those ways to email us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. Or you can call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're also uh, on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandbox is where you can like our page. And yes, we're on Twitter, which I refuse to call X. Uh, at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle there. Links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode can be found on our website showbizsandbox.com the music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group mgmt they can be found on their own website who is mgmt.com michael gilts has a website and every week it's something new and exciting what is it this week michael this week it's oh my god i can't believe box.com is taken 
<laughs> yeah, it's it's, taken, it's a oh well. it's a storage. Yeah, it's no, it's, it's not. It's a communication website for um, uh, communicate safely with anyone on any device or something or other. So it's some some way of communication. I thought it was like you know where you can upload. Yeah, it's where you can upload your files. So it's it's like a what, like a G drive or like a Dropbox, like Dropbox. Yes. That's All right. Much there you is. go. Uh, but you know what? If you can't find any of Michael's coverage on that web app. And you can't. And you can't. Uh, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com where all of his entertainment coverage is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. Play nice.